every day, God is asking you and me to metaphorically die to ourselves, that his grace, his glory might live through us and might shine through us. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. I'm going to share with you a mission story this morning, a story that I shared with you almost a decade ago. It was nine years ago. And in fact, to be quite honest with you, it is a story that I've wanted to share many times since then. I've wanted to share it again. Uh, and when, when Friday happened, I mean, immediately in my heart, I said, hey, we're going to share that story. And uh, so, uh, so that's the story I want to share with you today. Dick Lane introduced this story to me years ago. Uh, he had heard it, I think, uh, on Stephen Davy, I think was his name. And he'd heard the story, recommended it to Michael. Michael recommended it to me or something like that. I listened to it. And, uh, and I tell you, no mission story that I'd ever heard gripped me like that one, like this one did. I mean, it really has gripped me. I told Dick yesterday, we were talking a few minutes, and, and as I was reading through my notes on Saturday or Friday evening, and then Saturday both, and even this morning, I mean, I found, I found myself getting emotional just reading this. And I have a feeling this morning, you're going you're gonna to see some of my emotion come out as I tell you uh, this story. I can't remember a story that so vividly illustrates I think for all of us, God's love, God's patience, God's power, God's purposes, as clearly as, uh, as this life story does. So let me begin. I'm going to share the story, and then I'm going to share with you uh, a few applicational thoughts that, uh, that, uh, that we've put together. So this happened about oh, over 100 years ago, back in 1921, in, uh, in a Philadelphia church, in, uh, in Stockholm, it's called Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden. They sent out two missionary couples to, uh, to go to Belgian Congo, which is today the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo that we talked about in Sunday school this morning. David and Sevilla Flood, along with their two-year-old son David, and another couple, Joel and Bertha Erickson, they were sent on mission from this church in Sweden to the heart of Africa. At, at first, the two couples worked with the established mission station, but before long, they felt like God was leading them to leave the station and press on into um, the, the bush of Africa or into the remoter areas of Africa. So they, they left the station, and really they had to cut their way through the the... I guess the jungle or what, it's not so much jungle, but just the terrain uh, to find a place where they felt like God wanted them to be. And this was a huge, huge step of faith. And they encountered resistance everywhere that they went. And they finally, when they couldn't, they couldn't go any further. I mean, they just really had petered out of energy or whatever. They were near the village of Indolera. And uh, the chief wouldn't even let them come into the village, but they decided they couldn't go any further. So they, they decided to, to build their home outside of Indolera. I mean, I, there's a lot of details. I don't know why they chose that, but they chose to build their houses up on a hill just outside of that village. But the chief wouldn't let them into the village because he was afraid that uh, their local gods would be upset and alienate them from them. And so they wouldn't, he wouldn't let anybody, wouldn't let them into the village 
wouldn't allow them, uh, people to go to them. In, uh, in the weeks and months ahead, they kept praying for a spiritual breakthrough. The only contact they had with the village was the chief let this young boy go and sell eggs and chickens twice a week to the floods and to the Ericsons. Sevilla Flood was a tiny woman, only four foot eight uh, inches tall, and she decided that if she couldn't talk to any Africans but this little boy, she was going to talk to this little boy, and she was going to do her best to lead this little boy to Jesus. So she loved this boy, and she told him about Jesus, and in due season, this young boy trusted in Jesus. But that was it. There was no other encouragement for them as a missionary couple. Uh, meanwhile, malaria struck every member of their little band, uh, and in time, the Arakans felt like, hey, we can't do this anymore. And they told David and Savea they were returning to the mission station, wanted them to go with them. But David and Savea thought that God had called them there, and so they decided to remain outside of that village uh, in Dolera and carry on alone. Uh, Sevilla, soon after that, found herself to be pregnant, and she gave birth uh, nine months later there in, uh, in the heart of DRC, or the heart of Belgian Congo at the time. When the time came for her to give birth, the chief relented a little bit, and he did allow a midwife to go and help her, so she had help. And in, in 1923, she had a little girl. Her name was Aina Cilicia um, Flood. The delivery was exhausting for Sevilla, and uh, she was weak with uh, bouts from malaria. And so after Aina was born, she lived only 17 days, and she died. Now inside David Flood, something broke. He dug a crude grave for his wife. She was 27 years old at the time. And, uh, and then he took his children down the mountain back to the mission statement. And uh, in the days after her death, his grief turned to bitterness against the Lord, against God. And he declared, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and God has ruined my life. Now, the trek back to the coast where they would catch a ship back to Sweden, it was a, it was a long and difficult trek, and Aina was pretty sickly at the time. And so the Ericsons said to David, said, listen, leave Aina with us, and we'll take care of her. She'll get strong. When we come back, we'll bring her to you. And David agreed to do that. So Aina stayed behind there in, uh, in the Congo. She stayed behind with the Ericsons. And David and his son, David Jr., returned back to, to Sweden. Um, I think it was, it was uh, Davy who said that, or no, it was Aina, excuse me. She, in her autobiography, said he left Aina behind and he left his faith behind as well there in, uh, in Africa. Within eight months after this, both the Ericsons were dead. They were stricken with a mysterious sickness, and they died uh, within days of each other. Most everyone believed they were poisoned because there was another, another missionary who also died at the time. And the baby was turned over, Aina was turned over, to uh, an American missionary couple uh, named the Bergs. And uh, they adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie, and they remained there for three years, Aina, Aggie, you know, with this American couple for three years. Now, back in Sweden, David remarried, and he had four more children. And when the Bergs reached out to David and asked if they could take Aina back to the U.S. with them, he agreed. And uh, so um, at three years of age, Aina and the Bergs returned back to the United States. It was many years later that eventually the Bergs would legally be able to adopt Aina, but not, not any time 
in her, in her childhood. The Bergs loved Aggie. They were really scared that if they returned back to Africa because they didn't have legal papers that somehow or another they would lose her. And so they decided that they would not go back to Africa but would stay in, uh, in South Dakota where they were from. And so uh, Mr. Berg uh, took up pastoral ministry there here in the United States or they stayed home and took up pastoral ministry. And so Aggie grew up in South Dakota. And as a young, as a young lady, Aina, are now called Aggie, so I'm going to kind of go back and forth here a little bit with her name. But in, in time, Aggie came to trust the Lord Jesus. And she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, where she married and when she met and married a young man named uh, Dewey Hurst. The years passed. The Hurst enjoy a fruitful ministry. Uh, Dewey was a pastor, and then he was a teacher, and... Um, he eventually became the president of Northwest Bible College, today Northwest University in Seattle, Washington. She was eventually uh, granted uh, citizenship, and along the way they had two children. They had a little girl and had a little boy, Gigi and Rick, and uh, so they had their two children. And like I imagine it would be true for most of all of us, in time Aggie wanted to know about her Scandinavian past, and uh, she sought to find out more, but really uh, had a hard time. Uh, she knew the story of her birth parents and of the Ericsons, but she knew little beyond that. One day, she got in her mailbox a Swedish magazine written. It was a Swedish religious magazine. It was written in Swedish, so she didn't know what it said. But she's skimming through the magazine. Um, and she's skimming through the magazine, and she sees a picture that grabs her attention. It's a, a crude white cross in a... In, in Africa somewhere, and on it, it says Sevilla Flood, her mom. So she definitely recognizes this is something about, about Sevilla Flood, her mother. And so she goes to, <clears throat> she goes to um, the university where there's a faculty member that speaks Swedish and gets them to translate. And the professor summarizes the story. And this was the story that was in that magazine. It was about the missionaries who had come to Indolera long ago, gave birth to a little girl, the death of the young mother, and that one little African boy who'd been led to Christ. And how, after the missionaries had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. And the article said that he gradually had won his students to Jesus. The children led their parents to Jesus. Even the chief had become a Christian. And the article went on to say that in that village of Indolera, there were over 600 Christian believers, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. So you can just imagine how that must have impacted uh, Aggie, you know, to read that. Soon after that, the Hearst celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary, and the college gave them a gift. And the gift that the college gave them was uh, a trip back to Sweden so that Aggie could pursue her, her heritage. So when she got there, she sought out her real father, David Flood, or her biological father, I should say. David was an old man by now. Uh, years of bitterness. He had sought to medicate with alcohol, so he'd been an alcoholic most of his life. He'd recently suffered a stroke, uh, and he had one rule for his family all those years, and that one rule was this. You, we, we're not going to mention God, because God took everything from me. So when they arrived in Sweden, Aggie and Dewey were greeted by the, uh, by the flood's sons, including her full brother David, whom she hadn't seen 
you know, hadn't, I guess she wouldn't remember him at all, right? Hadn't seen him since they were, uh, since she was born. Thrilled to be meeting her siblings after all those years, she uh, wanted to visit her dad. So they prepared her for this visit. They said, listen, this is what you're going to find. Dad is uh, bitter. And if you talk about God, he's going to fly into a rage. Well, Aggie was not deterred by that. She walked into this neglected apartment, liquor bottles everywhere. She approached her 73-year-old father laying on the bed. She said, Papa. She said, it's Aina. And he turned and began to cry. And Aina said, I I mean, he said to Aina, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man stiffened. His bitterness emerged. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he turned away from her. Aggie stroked his face and continued. And she said, Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. And it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving Jesus because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look at his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had repented. He let go of his bitterness and turned back to the Lord that he had resented for years. Over the next few days, Aina and her dad spent time together and they enjoyed some tender moments. And and Aggie and Dewey returned back to the States. And within just a few weeks, David Flood died. And... uh, in the story, and, and I don't really remember this, but I got it in my notes, Pastor Stephen Davey that we listened to the story, he goes, you know, if this was the end of the story, it'd be good enough, right? If this was the end, that'd be, that'd be a great ending to a story. He said, but there's so much more to the story. So five years later, the Hearst were attending the World Pentecostal Conference on Evangelism in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zaire, that was formerly the Belgian Congo, today DRC, one of the speakers was Ruhigita uh, Indagora, the superintendent of the Pentecostal church in Zaire. He represented 110,000 baptized believers and spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. So Aggie was just enthralled by all this, and she wanted to meet him, so she went up after, after the service, and uh, she asked him if he was aware if he knew the village in which she had been born. And uh, he told her, yes, that's the village I grew up in. And then she asked him if he'd ever heard of David and Sevilla Flood. Yes, Madam Ruhigita replied, his words uh, then being translated into English. Every day I would go to Sevilla Flood's back door with a bag of, af- of eggs, and she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know if she had any single convert in all of Africa besides me. Shortly after I accepted Jesus, Sevilla died after giving birth to a daughter and her husband left. She had a baby girl named Aina, and I've always wondered what happened to her. When Aggie said, I am Aina, the daughter she gave birth to, Ruhikita began to weep, and they hugged like siblings separated since birth. He then told Aggie that Sevilla Flood was the most honored believer in their church history. Just a few months earlier, he had placed flowers on her mother's grave. Today, there are, over, there are hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire because of your mom's sacrifice some 50 years earlier. And then he continued, you must come to Africa to see. In time, that's exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed to cheering throngs of villagers lining the pass as they approached the village. 
She even met the man who had been hired by her father to carry her down the mountain in a cradle, in a hammock-like cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed that with Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Aggie died of cancer. This is new information. I I didn't have this last time. I I guess it was out there. I just didn't find it. Aggie died of cancer in 1984. And, uh, And much of the story I told you comes from her autobiography. Aggie's life uh, was not the easiest, like so many of ours. It was filled with joy and suffering. But in her case, and this is something Anne said to me, you know, I think it was Anne said this to me. In her case, she was able to see things that many of us may never get to see about our own suffering and our own, you know, what happens in our life. We may not get to see it like Aina did. She got to see how God used all of that. The final words in Aggie's biography uh, were uh, not It's not the end. So I want to share with you some lessons from this powerful missionary story. Um, So here they are. Here's the first lesson. It's the same lesson that the pastor shared that day in that church when she was visiting there. It was the lesson of unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's the truth that God uses our sacrifices, our dying to ourself. That's what God uses to grow his church. The second century church father, Tertullian, wrote this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant is this, that the sacrifice of men and women throughout the ages is the seed from which God builds his church. Robert Thomas was... um, the second missionary to visit Korea, and he was the first Christian martyr. He, Korea was closed to foreigners. This was in the mid-1800s. And Thomas made two treks into Korea. He got out the first time, but on the second one, they killed him. And the story is that as they were killing him, he had, he had jumped off the ship that was on fire, that had been set on fire by, by the Koreans, and uh, he's swimming to shore, loaded with as many Bibles as he was carrying. Thomas was stabbed to death by Park Chung Kwon, and his body was burned on the riverbank. According to the accounts, Park Chung Kwon picked up one of the scattered Bibles. As he was dying, he was throwing out Bibles, just casting out Bibles, which we might think is just, what, what is that going to do, right? But Chung uh, Kwon picked up one of the Bibles, took it home. After studying it, he received Jesus and became a devout follower of Jesus. Also in the crowd that day, a 12-year-old boy named Choi Chi Liang picked up three of those Bibles that Thomas scattered, kept them, gave one to Park Young Sik, who tore the Bible apart, used it to wallpaper his house. Later, people would come to his house to read the Bible, and many of them became Christians. Here's my point. Thomas did very little more than die Handling, handing out some Bibles, and yet the Christian, the Korean Christian community today, they credit Robert Thomas's death with sparking one of the greatest revivals in that part of Korea. And who can forget the deaths of Jim Elliot? And remember those guys: Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. 
Those were the five men that were killed by the, by the Wadoni tribesmen there in Ecuador. Stephen Saint, who was Nate Saint's son, this is, this is what he wrote later on. He said, I have personally paid a high price for what happened, meaning he lost his dad, but I have also had a front row seat as the rest of the story has been unfolding for half a century. I believe only God could have fashioned such an incredible story for such a tragic event, he says, because those five men were willing to die. Everyone else in the tribe had a chance to live. In John's verse, he says, God is talking about dying. He's talking about us losing our life, like Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and like Robert Thomas. And he's talking about, and like Sevilla, laying down her life. He's talking about us dying, literally dying uh, for the gospel. Yet every day, God is asking you and me to metaphorically die to ourselves, that his grace, his glory might live through us and might shine through us. You know, most of us aren't going to lay down our lives like Sevilla did or like, um, or like Jim Elliott or, or Robert Thomas or any of those folks. Um, and by the way, here's a, here's a quote by John Piper. He once said the reason for that is because most of us run to comfort and security and away from sacrifice and suffering. Let that sink in for a moment. Most of us will never suffer death because we run, run to comfort and security and away from sacrifice and suffering. Yet, yet God says that unless we are like a seed that dies, like a kernel that dies in the ground, we're not going to bring forth fruit. But if we die, he says, we'll bring forth much fruit. Every day, God is asking every one of us, every one of you in this room, Myself, he's asking us to surrender our will, to surrender our rights, to surrender our pleasures for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of God's honor, for God's love for his people. He's asking you and me to be that colonel that's willing to die so that others might live. Think about this, and I hope you, hope you get this. Think about this. Sevilla laid down her life in Africa but her dying began back in Sweden when she said, I'm willing to leave my family and my friends and everything I know to go. That's where her dying began. Yeah, she laid down her life, but she was already dying to herself all those years ago. You know? And whether she, if she had not died having Aina, she, she, she had already died in a way, and she was leading, and she had been, been able to lead Ruhigita to Christ. That's the first lesson. God is asking all of us to die for him, to lay down our lives for him. Remember, this is from Jesus. If any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the take up the cross part, that's about dying. Now, here's the second lesson that that I came up years ago from this story that I, I want to share with you again. Here's a second lesson. Let's, let's grab hold of this truth that God can take a little act of obedience on your part or on my part, and he can do an unimaginable things with that act of obedience. Never underestimate the ripple effect of one act of obedience. Sevilla saw one open door, one little boy that brought them eggs, and she determined that God wanted her to lead him to Jesus, and so that's what she did. She made it her aim to invest in that little boy. And I wonder how many of us would look, have looked at that and said, how insignificant is that? The egg boy, you're, you're leading the egg boy to Christ. What does that matter, right? And even after the boy trusted Christ, right? Even after Ruhigita trusted Christ, I wonder how many of us would have said, oh, that's sweet, you know. 
But we would not have thought of anything big coming from that. And yet that little boy was used by God to change that part of Africa because of Sevilla's Sevilla's investment. One little act of obedience sharing with the egg boy led led to so many people following Christ and so many lives being transformed. July 1st, 1885, Edward Kimball. I mean, he felt like the Holy Spirit was tugging on his heart to go. He he taught eighth grade boys. And uh, there was one boy who was a shoe salesman. And he just felt like God was tugging on him to go and talk to this young boy about Jesus. So he went to where uh, this boy worked. And, uh, and, or this young man worked, and he was talking to him, and he finally mustered the courage to go in, and Kimball found the boy in the back room stacking, uh, you know, stocking shoes, and the boy's name, of course, was D.L. Moody, and that day Kimball shared Jesus with D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody said, I'm going to trust in Christ, and began to follow Jesus, and D.L. Moody then became one of the greatest evangelists of, that America's ever known and, and of that time. I mean, he, he was used greatly of God to change, change the world. One little thing, Edward Kimball, this eighth grade boy Sunday school teacher, felt like he needed to go and share with D.L. Moody, the shoe stocks boy, and, and look at what it did. Never underestimate how your little act of obedience might, your little act of obedience of helping with, and I'm not trying to manipulate you here, I'm just trying to make a point. You're a little helping in, in three to four or five-year-olds. Who knows what that will do as far as eternity, the ripple effect of that. In, in both of these stories, I just told you, the pebble is sharing the gospel. The pebble that people cast into the river that had great ripple effects was them talking about the kingdom and sharing the good news of the kingdom with people, right? But then there's other acts of, there's other pebbles that we can throw in this, in this lake of, of obedience to God that can have rippling effect. And, and it doesn't have to be just sharing the gospel. It can be uh, just acts of kindness. Uh, you know, when, when we do an act of kindness or share our testimony or any little thing like that that we're doing in faithfulness to Jesus, we, can, we don't, don't underestimate how God might use that down the way. Carlene Bartolo shares this story. A few years ago, I saw a man sitting at a curb looking troubled and distraught. I drove by and asked if he was okay. With tears in his eyes, he expressed he had no money, no job. His rent was past due. He didn't know what to do. I told him that folks at my church might be able to help and invited him to come. I also gave him some cash. After visiting the church a few times, he gave his heart to the Lord. His life was changed. His broken relationship with his estranged wife was restored. God demonstrated his kindness to this man, and he was drawn to a place of repentance. And the kindness was the, the, kindness was the, the little pebble the woman threw into this lake of obedience to God, right? And, and the result of that was this guy's life was changed. My own story is like that. An unknown college guy coming to share with me and, and, and me ridiculing him after he leaves. But, I mean, that, that, that act was something that, that affected me. Jeff Denlinger coming to, to Ferrum, 17-year-old, loving Jesus with all his heart. Never met anybody like that. I mean, that was a, that was a pebble in the... That was a pebble in the lake of my heart, if you would. Hoyt Griffith, a Sunday school teacher who challenged me. Charles Swanson, who was a, um, he was a shipyard worker um, that I worked with when I was in the shipyard. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know anything. I can't even believe I still remember his name. 
But Charles Swanson just loved Jesus and he greatly impacted me. Recently, we've been talking about the money we've been sending to Congo and, you know, and we haven't gone in a while and we're not sure all that's taking place there with all of that. I mean, why did we go all those times there? You know, I, I don't know. This is what I do know is that God can use what little we do out of obedience to him. He can, we may not know what God's doing, but God can do great things through all of that. And uh, in my notes, I had Dick come in to share uh, a lesson with us or a thought. So Dick, come on up. And I asked him, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna mimic nine years ago. So Dick's going to come and share. Well, I don't have a clue what I said nine years ago. <laughs> but I know what I'm going to say now. And I want to talk about a three-step process. And I'm going to challenge you to be involved in step one, two, and three, okay? Well, first let me give, go back to a little bit of story. Uh, our niece, Alexandra, was here back in May, I think, and she was uh, at our house in anticipation of a summer of service at a Christian camp. She had come, she was looking forward to the job opportunity, but she talked about the mission opportunity that she was anticipating. She had given her heart to God. She had committed herself into the hands of God, and she was excited about the opportunity that she had to serve. Okay, so we saw that before she left. She spent the whole summer there in a summer camp situation with I'm not sure exactly the ages, maybe it varied. I think it was some preteens and maybe teens as well. But her one word summary when she came back to our house at the end of August was exhausting. <laughs> it was exhausting. It started early and it stayed late. And every week, guess what you got? A new group <laughs> full of passion and excitement. And you had to deal with that. And as she began to recount her summer, she told me that she wasn't sure about the results. She wasn't sure what kind of impact she might have had in any of those young people that she met. She had tried. She had been on the edge of her seat looking for those opportunities. But in summary, she wasn't sure if there really had been any and how effective she'd been with the few that she had. Well, guess what story came to mind when I heard her sum up her summer? David and Savea Flood. Never underestimate what can happen when you put your life and your service energy into the hands of God. You just may never know what God might do. <laughs> and then a song came to mind. Maybe if you're an old timer, you might remember this song. It was about an artist named uh, Ray Boltz. And he composed and performed a song that said, thank you for giving to the Lord. And I play that song for Alexandra. So you might not see ever any result from your summer's effort, exhausting as they were, but you put it in the hands of God, and one day there might be a person that says, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm a life that was changed because of you. One of the neat things about the David Savea flood is a member of their family saw that. And she went to Africa, and she saw those people say, thank you, your mother gave to the Lord. We want to thank you for that. So the application, the lessons always comes with a challenge, right? <laughs> 
the three-step process to put yourself in the hands of God. I am committing myself to live for God. I'm just here for a short season of time, and I don't want to waste it. God, I'm giving myself to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to see each day, every day, as a short-term missions opportunity. And God, I'm going to put it in your hands. When I leave the house this morning, I'm going to be on the lookout for some opportunity to do something to somebody else, for somebody else, in Jesus' name. Remember what Jesus said about that? Those little things that you might do to insignificant people, when you do that, you do it for me. The least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. The results, leave those up to God as well. The first two steps, they're up to you. Will you put yourself in the hand of God saying, this day, every day is my opportunity to live for God and affect eternity perhaps in the life of some person? I want to pray about that. It's a prayer for me, and I want to pray for you as well. Maybe you'll join me. God, help us to place ourselves more fully in your hands, to have a passion in our heart to live for you and to serve you and to see each and every day as a missions opportunity to live our life in a way that honors you and to put something into your hands. And God, it's just incredible that we might just not even imagine what you can do with whatever small thing we put in your hands. God, help us to be committed to that. And thank you for the opportunity to live this lifetime of faith. Thanks, Dick. I have one last lesson that I, I wrote down yesterday. And um, I didn't talk about this 10 years ago or nine years ago, but I want to talk about it for just a couple of minutes here and then we'll be finished. My final lesson is this. Be, be careful to not allow bitterness to go undealt with in your life. You know, um, we're told to get rid of bitterness. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God to whom you've been sealed, by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. And then, and then the author of the book of Hebrews writes this He says, Pursue with all people uh, holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness not only affects us, but it affects everyone around us too. Bitterness is unforgiveness on steroids. It is unforgiveness inflamed. You know, my back's been inflamed here lately, and there's a lot of pain in it. And you know what? That's what bitterness is. It's just unforgiveness inflamed. And all bitterness starts out with a hurt. You know, you, you get hurt emotionally or in some way. And sometimes you think of the person as actually having a malicious intent in hurting you. And, um, and as they've committed this grave injustice to you, I mean, it causes you to get angry and to grieve. And if you're not careful... If you're not careful, that'll turn into bitterness. It'll be like a root in your life, in your heart, that just grows and brings forth fruit. If you leave it, it festers, and that, event, and that anger eventually becomes this corrosive ulcer of bitterness. And that's what happened to David Flood. That's what happened to him. And he wasted his whole life in that bitterness. There's, there's only one way to deal with bitterness. You know what it is, don't you? 
It's forgiveness. The only way to deal with bitterness is to forgive the person who's brought about bitterness in your heart or who has, has been the one who has hurt you. It's forgiving them. It's letting go of the hurt. It's offering pardon. And you may need help with that. The Spirit of God helps us with that. God gave us His Spirit. He gave us His Spirit. But He's also given us each other to help us with that, to help us forgive. The power of the root to root out bitterness lies in your hands and in mine, and it's simply this forgiveness. So there you have it. Those are the lessons that I think we can glean from the life of David and Sevilla Flood. Our sacrifices are seeds which God, from which God brings great fruit. Um, I think Dick's point was very similar to my second point. He just said it so much better, but it's, let's put the little things in God's hands and he, will, he can use them. And you know what? We, we may never see it. That was Anne's point. Uh, Aina, she got to see it, right? But most of us never get to see it. You know, we don't know. We don't know what God does with what. Now, maybe one day in eternity, God will, maybe God's gonna let us see all of those things, right? But for now, sometimes you don't get to see them. And then, and then let's just not let bitterness, I mean, the Bible just kind of warns us against bitterness. Don't be bitter. Don't let it become a root in your heart. Get it out of there, lest it destroy your life. So would you take these encouragements this morning? Would you take these for your own life? Would you be the seed of sacrifice from which God can bring fruit? Would you do that? Would, uh, would you look at every act of obedience as a, uh, uh, a stone in the lake of, of God's work, right? And the ripple effects can be great. And would you allow God, just would you take everything in your hand and let God use it, even though you might not be able to see it? And, and then don't, uh, don't let bitterness take over. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to pastorjimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.